truths of your word sink home in our hearts today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We sure are glad you're worshiping here with us. And um, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles or your apps to First Peter. Um, we're going to be walking through this book together. And while you're finding your place there, I just want to make mention you've You've been hearing it, and it's in the bulletin and everything, but we want to just remind you that tonight all of our kids and youth activities start up, so make sure you check your bulletin for the times. It's going to be exciting with a kids club and then middle school and, and high school ministry starting up. We're going to have a great time there. And then um, if you didn't already get into uh, one of our new classes at 10 o'clock this morning from our discipleship communities, I want to invite you to check those out and come next week. There's a, a, a lot of great studies going on, and I know that you'll be blessed and uh, your lives will be enriched as you get to study the scriptures. So I want to invite you to join, uh, join us at 10 o'clock for one of our classes. And I know that you'll, uh, you'll be encouraged. First Peter chapter 1, and the title of this new series, we're calling it Hope as Exiles. And you're going to see why as we begin to walk through this book, Peter, right off the bat, is, is going to call us exiles. He's going to call us strangers, foreigners, people who don't quite belong. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever been somewhere and you felt like, uh, these are not my people. I, I do not fit in here. Maybe, it's, maybe it was a party. Maybe it was uh, some other place you were visiting. Uh, maybe you moved to a new community and you just, you just did not feel like you were at home. Um, I, I remember very distinctly uh, growing up, I was, I was homeschooled up through eighth grade. I went to a Christian school for the first couple years and then was homeschooled like first through eighth grade. And so uh, um, I didn't get out much, okay? I just you know, kind of level with you. I, I, I lived in the basement. I had a bedroom in the basement of our house, and uh, I liked to read. And, uh, and so I like, you know, get my homework done in a, an hour or two, it felt like. And, and then I just go down there and like a vampire, hide out and read and eat Totino's pizza. And um, like, you know, it was kind of and an aversion to sunlight, and, you know, got, got a little bit pasty, and my parents were like, you know what, you need to get out and, like, interact with human beings and stuff, and so they, uh, they, they sent me to public high school my, my freshman year, and I was absolutely terrified. I had so many questions. I remind you, like, I had never, like, I had never sat in a class where I had to, like, take notes and pay attention for 45 or 50 minutes straight, you know. We got all of our homework done at the kitchen table in, like, an hour or two, and then we had the rest of the day. I mean, usually to do chores and stuff, but uh, I, I had never, uh, I'd never taken a test in a room with, you know, just out without my brothers there and being able to ask my mom questions in the middle of the test and all that. Uh, even just the idea of finding my way to class and how do you, do you have time to go back to your locker in between classes? And like, I was so terrified. And when I got there the first day, all of my fears were realized. It was, I was so terrified. And I, I, I everything was just so new and, and scary. And on top of all that, I, I really didn't know people. I mean, I, I knew some, some kids from playing Little League and everything, but they, here in the, in the school, they all had their friend groups. They all, they all looked like they knew what they were doing, and they, they fit in, and they, I felt like I was trying to like, like get into these pre-established groups, and I just, I, didn't, I, just, I felt alone. I didn't feel like I belonged there, um, and uh, I, I just distinctly remember that, um, that, that 
fear. And by God's grace, he helped me get through that. And, you know, the enemy always wants you to think you're alone. That's one of his, his great tactics and tools. And the reality is, is that we're not. And there's always somebody going through the very, something very similar as, as us. And, and so I discovered there are other people that felt that way. And, and it was some great inroads to some relationships. Um, Peter here is writing to people, to believers that he calls exiles, people that don't quite belong. And we're going to see why here in just a moment. There's a lot of background information that you can get to whenever, whenever I'm studying a new book. I try to read as much as I can about what was going on in the culture, what scholars say about who wrote the book and when. And I realize that for the vast majority of us, uh, it's not stuff that's super interesting. And so I'm not going to spend much time here. But if, you're, if you are interested, I can point you to some good resources, to debates about when they think the book was written and, and why Peter may or may not have written it. But most scholars agree that Peter is the author of 1 Peter. He identifies himself as the author, and it's only in, in, the, in the last hundred years or so that more liberal scholars have questioned, was this really the disciple Peter? Could it have been somebody writing under his name? But, uh, and, the, and the biggest reason they question that is that Peter's Greek is so good that they wonder whether or not a, a fisherman from Galilee could have spoken such Greek. But scholars have shown that with it being a businessman, he would have interacted with so many different languages that it's not very difficult for him to have uh, to, to believe that he, he would have had a, a good grasp of the Greek language. And, um, and, and it mentions at the end of the letter that uh, Sylvanus had helped him with it, and so many think that maybe Sylvanus helped, helped him clean up some of his Greek and all that. So I'm already kind of going a li- kind of in the geek zone here, so I'm going to Pull it back a little bit on the background stuff. Uh, Peter wrote this like in the early 60s A.D. Um, this was a time where the church was, was taking off and the gospel was spreading. But um, persecution had not seriously ramped up. Now, he's going to have a lot to say about persecution. We'll, we'll say why here in just a moment. But Peter was likely in Rome in, in uh, chapter 5, verse 13. He mentions writing from Babylon and that was a sort of a code word or a, a slang term for Rome at, in those days. And so Peter was likely writing this letter from, from Rome. Let's see here. I was having a little trouble with this in the first service, but I think we can get up. All right. Uh, Peter mentions in the very first verse, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's this region right here. So here's Rome. Here's where Peter is currently. And he's writing from Rome all the way over here to Asia Minor. This is like modern-day Turkey, if you're, if you're uh, good with the, your geography. Here's Jerusalem, uh, where Peter would, have, Peter would have grown up just north here in Galilee. And this is the region. It's a, it's a really, uh, um, like, kinda, kind of a, not, not desolate, but it was, at the time it wasn't really a settled area. So uh, there's, there's these believers that are scattered all abroad in this in this area, and Peter's writing this letter that he's hoping is going to get passed to all these different churches. Now, now th- it's really interesting. I think that there's, some scholars think there's, a, there's a, a, a double meaning when he talks about exiles and those who are dispersed. Um, people aren't really sure how pe- Peter knew these folks here. Um, he doesn't mention anybody by name specifically, and so it's not believed that he came and ministered in this area. But what, what some scholars think is that 
And about a decade before Peter wrote this letter, we know from history that the Roman emperor at the time was, um, was doing like forced resettlement programs. You see, this was kind of a newly conquered area with the Roman Empire, and Rome was all about bringing their culture to their conquered areas. They wanted conquered areas under their rule to assimilate to Roman way of life. So not only would they go in and try to teach people, natives, how to be Roman citizens, but they would actually force there, there were different periods where they would force Roman citizens to move to some of these areas and say, like, you're going to be sort of our, our goodwill ambassador. And a lot of times they would send people that were causing trouble or that they just kind of wanted to maybe break up certain groups. And one of the, one of the theories out there is that in the decade leading up to Peter's letter here, around the 50s, that, that there were certain Christians that were starting to just kind of bother the Roman Empire. That, that again, the persecution hadn't amped up. They weren't killing Christians at this point. They weren't throwing them into prison in mass. But they wanted, they wanted to, to send some of them out. Just sort of, Christians were a bother. They, 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 were, they were weird. They worshipped one God, not all the Roman gods. They, they, they wouldn't participate in the kinds of things that the culture participated in. And so sometimes they got tired of them, and so it was believed that a lot of uh, some, some Jewish Christians and then some Gentile Christians were sent into this area, and so churches began to crop up in sort of some of these remote regions. And Peter wrote this letter to encourage the believers there, because again, not, not, there's, no, there's not big cities up here. You have Colossae down here, but there weren't a lot of big cities up here, so it would have been little small pockets of believers gathered around that needed support, they needed encouragement, they needed strengthening. And so, right from the get-go, Peter uh, wants to uh, build them up. He wants to strengthen them. And he wants to prepare them for persecution. You see, because it, it, people were starting to discover that Christians were a bit weird, they didn't participate in the same things that, they, that the culture participated in, persecution was starting to arise. It, it's what one scholar called sort of soft persecution. It, it, it's the sort of stuff that maybe we experience in our culture where somebody at work tells you to, hey, stop bringing your Bible. Like, or stop talking about what you learned on Sunday. Just leave it alone. Like, nobody's dragging you out in the alley and beating you half to death because of your faith. It, it's not happening by and large in the United States, especially in, in our area. But what we do see sometimes, what we do experience here, is that ostracization, that, that like people treating you differently or not talking to you. You're not getting invited to this or that. Uh, sort of that undercurrent of persecution. That's what many of these Christians were starting to experience. People were like, you're weird. Um, in fact, in chapter 4, verse 4, Peter says, they're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. That's what we're talking about. They're like, you don't act like us. You don't do the same things we do. There's something wrong with you. And so these believers were beginning to experience that sort of lower level of persecution. And what, what happens here, what we know from history, is in just one or two years, uh, they experience, Rome experiences the, um, the great fire that destroys two-thirds of the city. And Nero is going to blame that fire on Christians. Some people, many scholars think that Nero himself started it because he wanted to rebuild the city. Persecution from that point up begins to amp up. This letter is sort of getting Christians in the Roman Empire, and especially this region, ready to face suffering and hardship in the way that God longs for us to. 
Peter writes this letter to encourage the believers in Asia Minor in the midst of suffering to stand firm as they consider the blessings of being in Christ, who is the ultimate example of the one who has suffered well and has now received glory and honor. He wants them to understand how to live out the gospel while living in an unbelieving society. I want us to take the rest of our time to think about this idea of being exiles. That's, we see it right at the very beginning of chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, in a Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen living as exiles. That word there uh, means uh, someone who, who's staying in a while in a strange or foreign place. Someone who's residing temporarily. We're going to see this, these terms and this concept come up over and over again throughout the book. Exiles, strangers, sojourners, aliens, people who don't quite belong. There's probably, as we mentioned, there's more to this than simply being spiritual exiles. There's most likely a, 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 a two parts to this. They were, they were actually physically exiled from their homeland, which could have been Rome. It could have been even other parts of the Roman Empire. But they were also, Peter also wants them to know that just as, as you're away from your home, and you're in a strange place, we also want you to understand that, that this, is, this is life for those who follow Jesus Christ. We're different. We don't quite fit in. We don't quite belong. Peter understood this firsthand. He had grown up in a, in a little fishing village on the Sea of Galilee. He was a fisherman, a, a small-town businessman. And now... A couple decades after he met Jesus, he's in Rome, the cultural and political capital of the known world at the time. Talk about being out of sorts. Talk about being in a strange place. Talk about not fitting in. Peter knew what it was like. There's a passage in Hebrews chapter 11. If you want to turn there, we, we can also throw it on the, on the screen In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16, we see this same concept come out. The, the writer of Hebrews, as you know here in this chapter, is what, this is what we call the, the Hall of Faith chapter, where the writer of Hebrews is talking about all of these men and women throughout biblical history who have walked faithfully with God and trusted Him through trying circumstances. And notice the, the parallel that he makes here, the, the, the picture that he creates for those who are walking by faith. He says in verse 13, these all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised. They saw them from a distance. They greeted them and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on earth. That, that phrase, temporary residents, is the same Greek word that Peter uses in chapter 1, verse 1. They were foreigners and temporary residents on earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have an opportunity to return. But they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. You see, when we understand that this is us, that we're foreigners and temporary residents, it shapes everything that we do in this life. It shapes how we look at everything, how we look at our jobs, how we look at our money, how we look at our hobbies, how we think about our families, our relationships, everything. If we understand that this is not our home, that this is not all there is, this is not our final destination, we're temporarily assigned here, 
it shapes our values. And as exiles, there, there are a couple of things I wrote down that I, I hope will encourage us this morning. I think we need to remember. That the first thing is that exiles need grace. Exiles need grace. Peter mentions grace in his book at least ten times. And the concept of grace even more than that. He starts off in verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. You get down to verse 13. I love, we're going to have a lot of fun when we come to this verse in a couple of weeks. I love this verse. He says, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Set your hope completely. Don't disperse it among other things. Be completely resting in that grace that will be revealed. He's going to finish the book in chapter 5, verse 12, by saying, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. When you're living as a stranger, when you're not, not at home, you need grace. You need help. You need strength. You need encouragement. And Peter knew that these men and women needed the grace of God in a special way. And if anybody knew about needing grace, it would be Peter. That day when he heard the rooster crow for the third time and he denied his Savior, it could have been the end of Peter's spiritual life. It could have been the end of his journey with Christ. The guilt and the shame and the sorrow he felt over his sin, that could have been it. And then one day, Jesus invites him to have breakfast on the beach, one of the most famous breakfasts of all time. And as they share some fish, the resurrected Jesus Christ says, Peter, I'm not done with you. He would have had every reason to say, Peter, you're out of the game, right? He blew it in the Savior's most needy hour. He didn't just like no show, like he cursed and said three different times, I don't know this man. Peter's failure could have been his final chapter, but it wasn't. Our Lord Jesus came to him in grace and says, Peter, I'm not done with you. You see, this morning, we need to be reminded of that constantly, time and time again. Your failures are not your final chapters. In fact, our failures are often the starting point for a greater ministry, a greater opportunity as we encounter God's grace in a fresh and a powerful way, and as we're humbled through our, our sin and our repentance and God's gracious restoration, we're given the opportunity to start all over. It doesn't mean there won't be consequences of sin and all of that. But Peter, from this time forth, wasn't that he didn't mess up. Galatians talks about Paul having to rebuke Peter for the way he was treating Jews, other Jews and stuff, uh, or other Gentiles. 
But Peter began a new chapter as he experienced the powerful grace of God. You can just read through the first 10 chapters of Acts and you see what happens with someone who has received God's grace. I mean, just a few things. In Acts chapter 1, Peter takes the lead choosing the 12th disciple to replace Judas. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches this unbelievable sermon and, and, and a couple thousand people come to Christ. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John heal the lame man at the temple. In Acts chapter 4, they're arrested by the Sanhedrin and Peter just stands up to them and says like, I don't care what you tell me, I'm going to preach the gospel. In chapter 5, he has to walk through a difficult task of, of uh, courageously presiding over the the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira and their deception. In Acts chapter 8, Peter uh, confirmed the preaching of the gospel to the Samaritans and dealt with the deceit of Simon the magician. And on and on it goes. This was a man who was captured by God's grace, whose failure wasn't the final chapter, and was sent forth. This morning we're reminded that exiles need grace. We need grace for our failures. We need grace in those times when we do feel like strangers, we do feel that acutely that we don't belong. God has grace for those moments. The second thing I wrote down is that exiles need to know who they are. Exiles need to know who they are. Right here in verse 2, right at the beginning, Peter explains their lofty status as those chosen by God. And listen to what he says. He said um, he's writing to those chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. We could spend a lot of time thinking about each of those phrases and the riches that are contained there. The first thing he says is that they're chosen. He says, I want you to know that you're chosen by God. Uh, now, this, is, this, this concept results in a lot of debate in the church and has over the centuries, the idea of election and God choosing us. There's other places, that, you know, like Ephesians chapter 1, that, talking, that talk about this taking place before the foundation of the world. And I'm not interested in debating over exactly what everybody's opinion is on this, but he, here's the deal. Whatever, whatever chosen entails, it, it means at least this much. That you're precious to God and he has marked you out to be his own. Like, like the, the Christian faith is not just like God like getting up every morning and checking to see who signed up for his team. Oh, look who we got here. Okay. Oh, are you serious? Come on. We've all been a part of teams where we weren't wanted. I mean, maybe we all haven't. I don't know. I'm, I'm making assumptions there. I've been a part of teams where I wasn't wanted. Like, I'm a terrible, terrible basketball player. I've never been able to play basketball. Um, and, and so there were, like, those times where it was like you get down to the last one. And, and like, I, I was mentally prepared to be last. But you're, you're not really ready for the, like, do we have to take him, that whole debate? Like, no, you take him. No, we're going to have three more players than you. We're like, I don't care. He's negative two players, so it'll even out. Like, God's not like that. God, God has, has chosen us, Scripture says. He, he has brought us intentionally to be a part of his family. Listen, when, when you and I are living in a world 
that doesn't want us, we need to know that there's a God who does. You and I will face times in life where we feel like we're absolutely alone, where we're rejected by even maybe those closest to us. But there is a God who says, I have from eternity past brought you in. You didn't just sign up for my team. I chose you. I brought you in. And you're part of my family. You're one of my children because I want you. These believers needed to know that they were chosen. He says, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Again, there's so much here in this little prepositional phrase. Through the, the, the Spirit is the one who's drawn us to God, who has brought us. The, the Spirit of God is at work doing all kinds of things 24-7 that we're just not even aware of. And one of the things that He's done is, is set us apart. That's what sanctification means here. We've been set apart by the Spirit and brought to God. And then he says, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Now that could talk about our lifelong obedience, um, as Peter is going to do throughout this letter. But many scholars think that he's simply talking about the obedience of the faith. That is, when, like, the, the Spirit of God set us apart so that we could be obedient and, and we were sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ as we trusted in Jesus as our Savior. Scott McKnight says this, Peter intends his readers to understand who they are before God so that they can be who they are in society. Peter wants us to understand who God says we are before he launches us out on mission. Before you can live faithfully as exiles, you need to know who your God is, and you need to know what He thinks of you and what He has done for you in Jesus Christ. So no matter what kind of waves crash against your ship, you're secure in His view of you. The third thing I wanted to say about being an exile is that being an exile is a good thing. This is not something that we're saddled with, that we're like, ah, oh, man, I didn't know this when I signed up and I, I became a Christian. This is awful. You see, it's tempting to lament that things are not the way that they once were. Some of us are old enough to remember times when believers were much more favorably accepted in this culture. In fact, some of you remember times when more people on your block were involved in church than weren't. And you could talk to somebody about a biblical story, even an unbeliever at work, and they would know who Adam and Eve were. They would know who Noah was or who, who Jesus was. They may not believe in him, but they knew the stories. We, our culture is changing. We're becoming much more like where the believers were that Peter is writing to. That being a follower of Jesus Christ is increasingly unpopular. There are many places today. I don't think we're there yet in central Michigan. Um, I don't think, anyway. Uh, but there are many places in our country today where being like telling people that you're a believer is very costly. It can cost you jobs. It can cost you livelihood. It can cost you a great many relationships. Uh, in, in some places of the Bible Belt and in more conservative circles, it's still advantageous to call yourself a Christian. A public official may have a better chance of getting elected if they call themselves a Christian than if they didn't. 
but there are many places, and I think this is where our country is heading. I could be wrong, and it could be an about face, and we pray for that. But scripture seems to indicate things are going to get worse before Jesus comes back, not better. And I think that if we're prepared to say, okay, I'm, I'm willing to stand alone if necessary. I'm willing to stand and live as an exile. We'll be much more prepared to face the things that come our way. Being in exile is a good thing. One writer says, when the church is ostracized and suffering, we're following in the footsteps of Jesus. We're joining our king in exile. You remember his words that foxes and birds had more of a home in this world than he did. The fourth thing that I just want to mention briefly, that in this whole process we need to remember that we're, we're aliens, not alienators. Sometimes we can, we can live up that whole idea that we're strange, we don't fit in, and we can just run with it and be kind of like pushy and, and, and unintentionally or unnecessarily create a further gap than necessary. Um, we're not called to be jerks about our faith. We're not called to be mean. Like sometimes, and Peter's actually going to address this, um, Sometimes we'll say, oh man, I'm being persecuted for my faith, and a, a good, honest friend will come along and say, no, you're just being kind of a jerk, and you're not being persecuted for your faith. People are just, they don't like you because you're mean. <laughs> and Peter actually addresses that. He's like, don't let any of you suffer as an evildoer, because there is that kind of suffering. And we can be like, oh, I'm suffering for Jesus. No, you're suffering for being a, a jerk. <laughs> we don't want to be that. And then finally, in this whole process, we're called to be engaged exiles. You see, there, there are two opposite extremes we need to avoid. On one hand, if, we, if we're kind of beginning to wrap our mind around this idea of, okay, this world is not my home. Uh, Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 3, my citizenship is in heaven. There, there's a, one extreme that says, okay, then I just need to stay as far away from unbelievers as possible. And Christians at different times throughout the centuries have done this. Maybe some of you grew up in a community or a, a church that it was like, we're going to do whatever we can to not be around Christians. And when we have to, like say at work, we're just going to kind of keep our head down and then get away from them. We're not going to spend any time with them outside of work. We're not going to go to their house or go to their parties or spend time where they live and work and play. We're not going to do that. We're just going to cut ourselves off because the world is evil and we don't belong here. And, and I realize that that sounds kind of extreme, but some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you were part of churches that have been like that. Uh, if you've ever seen um, the M. Night Shyamalan's movie, The Village, from back in 2004, there's a great illustration of this. I'm going to kind of ruin the movie. I'm just giving you a heads up. But it, it was 2004. You've had time to watch it. So, uh, <laughs> But in, in the movie, the, the movie takes place in this village that seems to be set in like, like, like the... Um, like 1700s, colonial America, all the dress, and, and uh, there's no technology, everything in this village here, and the people in the village, you're starting to uh, get to know the characters, and, and you're starting to see some of the tensions. And as the movie goes on, the big reveal at the end is that you discover that as, as one of the people escapes from the village and gets away from the, the tyranny, you discover that they're living in the present day. And, you know, there's cars and there's, you know, 
technology, and, and they're, they're astounded. These kids have grown up completely isolated from everything around them. And what happened was it began as a very good idea. The, the, the parents and the adults in the community had experienced some deep tragedies and hurts in life, and they wanted to protect their kids from those same tragedies, from the evils of the world. And so they created this community, and they completely fabricated this entire lie and this entire world so their kids could be isolated. Well, if you've seen the movie, you know that they, they can't protect their kids from it, that there's still, you know, there's still hurt and there's still tragedy, and someone is accidentally murdered, and, and all of a sudden now, all of the pain that they were trying to avoid for their kids, all of the suffering and all the hardship, it comes flooding in. They can't stop it. But they tried, and they tried to isolate and to hide and get away. And that movie is a great parable for those of us as believers when we're tempted to say, I'm going to get away from the world. There are so many problems to that. Namely, we can't be a light if we're not in the midst of the darkness. But then there's the other extreme that we also wrestle with, is that we're like, we're all in with the world. Like, I want to I wanna blend in so much that nobody knows I'm a follower of Christ. I, I don't ever feel like an alien and stranger because I'm acting just the way that everybody around me acts. We're given into materialism and, and to the lust of the flesh, and, and Peter's going to deal with that. What we're being called to as exiles is to walk that narrow path, walk that, that difficult path of treading in between. Uh, right in the middle. In, in some ways, choosing an extreme is easier because everything's black and white on this side. Everything's black and white over here. But over here, there's sometimes gray areas. You may get invited to go be uh, at, at this event or, or this party. And, and it may not be like, man, yes, I should go or clearly, no, I shouldn't. It may be like, I'm going to pray about this. I'm going to talk to some other believers about this. Because I want to be in the world. I want to be engaged for the gospel. Jesus was in the middle of sinners, so much so that his reputation suffered. I think sometimes we get way too concerned about what people think, and sometimes we step away from those opportunities to be a part of the culture that God, in which God has called us to live. This takes wisdom. This takes prayer. This takes community with others coming alongside of us to help us know what it looks like to be, I, I, I love this phrase, engaged exiles. Knowing that we don't belong, knowing that this world is not at home, not our home, but still a part of the world around us. Yesterday, I was at the soccer fields for Owen's soccer game, and I was just impressed and reminded again of the mission field that we have. Like these are the everyday things that we're a part of. You may have your own grandkids' games or other events or meals or, 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 or ways like they're just part of the ebb and flow of life. And I can choose to put my lawn chair way away from everybody else, which is, which is tempting as an introvert and all that. <laughs> and to not engage people those people are probably talking about things that I don't want to listen to anyway. I, I can come up with all the spiritual-sounding excuses. Or I can take a step of faith and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to be engaged. I'm going to set my lawn chair near somebody, maybe even somebody I don't know. This is 
panic-inducing. And, and start a conversation. Engage them. We're called strangers here. We don't have to be weird. But we're not going to fit in. God's called us to walk that fine line of being engaged exiles. Knowing that this world's not our home. But leaning into those ministry opportunities, those relationships, those people that God has called us to love. Peter's going to say a lot about grace because we need grace for this. He's going to say a lot about the Holy Spirit because we need the Spirit's wisdom and power to do this. And he's going to repeatedly remind us of the grace that's going to come at the end of the age because we need to keep everything in perspective as we live as exiles. I hope you'll join me on this journey. I'm excited to study 1 Peter together. Let's, let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, the longer I live in this world and the longer I live this life, I realize more and more that there, there are a, a, so many of those situations that are gray areas that require wisdom. Father, I pray that as exiles, as those who've been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, who've been redeemed, who've been brought into your family, who, according to verse 3, have, have a, a living hope that we would live wisely in this world. Father, we don't want to run and hide we don't want to isolate ourselves. The fields are white unto harvest. Our community, our neighbors, our loved ones need you. I pray that we wouldn't hide away just waiting for Jesus to come back. At the same time, God, I pray that people around us can see a difference. That people can see that we're not the same as everybody around us. And give us strength and encourage. And may this letter encourage us to weather that subtle persecution. The snarky comments, the eye-rolling. Things that seem so small when you say it out loud, but we know that, God, that's... It. Those things sting and they hurt. We want to be accepted. We want friends. God, we need your grace and your wisdom to live as engaged exiles in this world. I pray that as we study your word, you would show us what that means so clearly and that we would live differently. Now the Savior who died and rose and who reigns, grant you joy in the midst of labor, peace in the midst of troubles, hope in the midst of despair, and faithfulness in the midst of temptation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you'd like prayer for any reason, there'll be several of us up here that would love to pray with you. May God bless you. This